I've lived in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in New Jersey that are involved in the arts, and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Lasapio, talking arts and culture, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. With the winter still upon us and the fact that my next guest lives and works in L.A., I've decided to take the giant leap of using Zoom to record this interview. I'm going to ask you in advance to pardon the technical flaws. Billy Van Zant and I have known each other for many years. He's an actor, writer, producer, playwright, and author of a book, Get in the Car, Jane. That title character, Jane, is his longtime collaborator, Jane Milmore, who is unfortunately no longer with us. You may recognize the name Van Zant. Stephen Van Zant of Springsteen and Sopranos fame is his older brother. And we talk about that along with a discussion about his career, how the industry works in L.A., and exactly what he's planning to do in the future. Hello, Billy. Well, hello, Lucille. Why don't we start out by you just giving a quick summary of your career? Okay, I started out, grew up in Middletown. I started in community theater. And the community theater got me an agent and a manager out of New York. And the manager agent out of New York got me a bunch of auditions. The first movie audition was Jaws 2, which sort of changed everything for me. And after a couple of years of sporadic film work, the auditions were few and far between. So I started writing to give myself something to act in. And that first play was Love, Sex, and the IRS. I shipped that up to New York City with the reviews and Samuel French decided to publish it and said they'd take my next two as well. And I turned to Jane and said, next two, I guess we have to write two more of these things. And we started writing. We did 23 plays together. The plays got us into television writing, the Newhart show. I thought, well, I'm going to have to take a year off from acting to do this. Okay, well, I'll, I'll suck it up and take the year off. And then 400 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Most of what you've written has been comedy, right? Yes, almost all of it. We have one piece that is a dramatic piece, which is fantastic, and we couldn't sell it. And it's probably the best thing we've ever written, so go figure. We started out writing farce. After a couple of years of that, it was like we're writing the same thing with different costumes, you know? (laughs) So we decided to branch out a little bit. And we found that the most successful plays were things that, that were out of our comfort zone. And if they scared us, that meant it was the right thing to do. Give me an example of something that scared we wrote, me. We wrote a musical. Who, you know, we didn't ever wrote a musical before. And it's like, well, why don't Merrily we Merrily do We Dance and Sing, is that Merrily it? Merrily We Dance and Sing. And it, it's a hilariously funny show. One of the biggest gambles I took, and because we did this off-Broadway too, was Silent Laughter, which was a mm-hmm. silent movie done live on stage with the organist and the title cards above the actors' heads with the dialogue on it. Now, I know that originally your plan was acting, yeah. but your career's really taken a different turn. And in many ways, you've been a lot more successful than most actors are. If you're an actor and all you do is act, you sit around waiting for the phone to ring or you wait for an audition or you wait for a call from your agent. When you're a writer, you just create your own work. I've never been without work. Jane and I always did three, four things at once. We would be doing a TV show while we're writing a play to go back east and do that later. So there's always something going on with the idea that if one thing didn't work out, you had something else already coming down the pike that you could just jump to. 
I've heard that it's pretty difficult to become a television writer unless you're pretty young. And has that changed? I would say if you're writing drama, there's no age barrier. Mm -hmm. I think for comedy, for the most part, they want somebody who's 20 years old. They just do. If you've been a success young, you have about a seven-year period of being hot. If you're on a hot TV show, you can walk into any network and pitch something with two lines. How about a show where I such and such? That's great. Sold. And then as the years go on, your pitch has to get longer and longer because how many chances are you going to get, really, before they start going, how many times are we going to give this guy a show? And he hasn't been great for anything. <laughs> You know, for us, in terms of pitching, what started out as maybe one or two lines of here's the idea, you find out suddenly you have to talk about what the character eats for breakfast. You have to show all the different episodes you're going to do for the entire season. Mm -hmm. I never did that when I started out. And everything's micromanaged now. When I started out, if you were hired to be the creative person, that's what you did. But now I couldn't cast a two-line walk-on role in a TV show without putting that person on tape and other two people on tape and sending it to the studio for approval. It's so much red tape now. I don't care how bad a TV show is. If it's on the air, I always think good for you to the creator of that show because I know yeah. all the hoops you had to do to get through to get it on the air. Which is amazing because there are some really bad shows on television. Yeah, a lot of terrible shows. It seems that most television writers are still men. I mean, Rosemarie wouldn't have a chance. She's old <laughs> and she's a woman. I think it's, it's changed a lot for the better in the last maybe five years. Jane was one of the first female showrunners. She never got mm -hmm. any credit for it. Other people would have a title of executive producer, but somebody else would actually be running the show. Jane ran the show with me. But I will say for most of the staff, the writing staffs that we were on when we started out, maybe seven, eight men, two women, usually. Recently, it's almost it's almost 50-50, not quite, but almost. So I'm going to ask you to define some terms here. You say showrunner. What's mm -hmm. a showrunner? Showrunner is the person in charge of the of the sitcom. A lot of times it's the creator of the show. You're the executive producer. That person is in charge of everything involving that show. There's a lot, they call them a line producer. Mm -hmm. They're the person that actually hires the crew. The executive producer, showrunner, is also in charge of the editing, the casting, the scripts, dealing with the studio who's paying for the show, dealing with the network who's buying the show because they all have notes, and juggling the stars of the show and keeping everybody happy at the same time. Don't some shows have multiple executive producers? Yes. There are so many different titles for <laughs> writer. A story editor is a writer. A, a story consultant is a writer. Supervising producer is a writer. Co-producer is a writer. Executive producer is a writer who's had a long track record and instead of you know paying them a million dollars, you give them a title. And then there's consulting producers. They're all writers. And then the, if you see produced by, that's the person in charge of the money. So you and Jane were writing partners for decades, mm -hmm. but you started out in a romantic relationship. We did. Sadly, we lost Jane recently. But since the two of you had such success as writing partners, tell me why that partnership outlasted the romantic one. Well, we met in high school. We dated, we split up, we dated, we split up, and it must have happened 4,000 times. And we were just ready to split up for the very last time when they offered us television shows. <laughs> So you were stuck with each other. Oh, God, let's, let's suck it up and just do this. And we spent probably a good, good year being awful to each other. Just mm. we were, it was as if we had gone through the ugliest divorce you ever heard of, but we would still be working together. So I'd be at my desk facing her desk. She'd be making a date on the phone to just to spite me across the desk. I'd be making a date to get back at her. We got some very good scripts out of that, but it took us about a year 
to go from bitter enemies to slightly friendly to being friends to being back to being best friends and being soulmates of sorts and without without missing one single day of work in 46 years. What do you think you owe the success of your partnership to? I think the secret to a good partnership is you find someone you think is much funnier than you. This is about comedy writing. Mm -hmm. Find someone who's much funnier than you, who thinks the same thing about you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you spend the whole time trying to make the other person laugh. And if you can, can pass yeah. that test, it's good. You end up becoming as insecure and paranoid as one writer. It's, and at least they think you're good. Exactly. But what happens if you turn in the script, anytime anybody turns in a script, if someone doesn't call you three seconds later and say, that's the funniest thing I ever read, you're panicking the whole time that they think it stinks. When you start out as a writing team, you have that other person to say, am I crazy? Or No, no, this is good. This is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were a good team. We fought a lot. I do a chapter of it in my book about what it's like to write as a team. At least one of your plays, in fact, my favorite play of yours, was based, I think, on large part on your relationship. Infidelities? Yeah, 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 yeah well. That's absolutely my favorite play of yours. Thanks. That doesn't get done a lot. I'm really surprised it doesn't. Yeah. Once we started branching out away from the farces, that one and a show called Having a Wonderful Time, Wish You Were Her, were based in part on real life situations and things. Yeah. One of the critics said, these people should be writing for television, which was an insult. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I just I just thought I opened up and gave you a, you know, a bunch of depth here. Eventually, we took it to heart and we wrote for TV. <laughs> In this area of New Jersey, you can't say the name Van Zant without people thinking about your brother, Stephen. Mm -hmm. Of course, everybody knows he's an incredibly successful rock musician in Springsteen's band. So, of course, it came as quite a surprise to a lot of people that he also became a television star on The Sopranos. Silvio Dante. No more so than him and me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how weird was this for you? Your goal was to be an actor, and here's your brother not even trying, and God damn it, he gets to be on The Sopranos. He and I were golfing with my father and his phone rang and it was uh, David Chase inviting him to be on The Sopranos. And so I he didn't even audition? No. They saw him on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducting the Rascals. He was, yeah. Stephen was basically doing an Italian bit, but he said there's something about Stephen's face and the way he's talking. And so he, Stephen flew out to LA and actually went into audition as Tony Soprano. That's what the original oh. thing was. And Chris Albrecht, who ran HBO, said, I'm not going to spend millions of dollars on a guy that never acted before. David Chase said to Stephen, you know, I still want to put you on the show. I'll just create a different role for you. And that's how that started. That's great. The only time it ever bothered me at all was when he was on the cover of TV Guy. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, that was supposed to be me. He crossed over about the same time Jane and I started writing musicals. So it was, we're doing each other's job. <laughs> Are you still writing for television? While Jane was sick, we never thought she was going to pass away. We really didn't. We thought it was a misdiagnosis. We worked two, three days a week, right up till maybe two weeks before she died. Yeah. So we have a bunch of projects that are half written, three quarters written. And we have a couple of projects that will eventually get made. Any roles there for me? Uh, probably. Probably. <laughs> 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 the pandemic ever ends and the world ever goes back to whatever it's going back to. Yeah. We're still touring the Boomer Boys musical, which is the last play Jane and I wrote together. It's four guys talking about the changes that men of a certain age go through. And it's <laughs> really fun. It's Personal experience. When I get to be that old, I'll let you know. I know how much you love Lucille Ball. And in fact, you and Jane won an Emmy, didn't you, for the Lucille Ball special that you did? We were nominated for an Emmy. We had Lucy and Desi narrate the making of the show based on film <clears throat> clips that I remember them doing in different interviews. And Lucy Arnaz came in and hosted for us. 
So tell me, what is Lucille Ball like? Oh, she was great. She was great. She was everything I wanted her to be. She was just sweet. She was a workaholic, which I, as you know, I love. She liked to rehearse. She liked to rehearse with her props. She was a little bossy, which some people can relate to. <laughs> it was one of the biggest thrills of my life. Being invited to her house was even weirder. The first time I was in LA, I went straight from the airport to Lucy's house. And I started getting out of the car and Jane said, what are you doing? I said, I got to meet her. Jane hid in the, under the dashboard and I walked up the walkway and I knocked on the door and I said, Billy Van Zandt's here to see Lucille Ball. And they said, he's not home and slammed the door in my face. I got in the car and I left. So 10 years later, I was invited to her house. So I said, did you ever meet Charlie Chaplin? I said, I can see his influence in your work, but I've never seen a picture of the two of you together. She said, no, but I'll tell you a story. I found out where he lived in 1976. So we drove to his house, but Gary wouldn't get out of the car. So he hid under the dashboard and I got out and I walked up and I knocked on the door and I said, Lucille Ball's here to see Charlie Chaplin. And they said, he's not home and slammed the door in my face. I identified with her so much and suddenly we're telling the exact same story. Yeah, I never told her my part of the story. She probably would have liked it. She would have loved it. I wish I told her. What was the most frustrating thing or what is the most frustrating thing about the L.A. art scene? I think a lot of times actors are taken advantage of out here mm -hmm. in terms of you want to, you know, you want to perform while well, you have to join our company for X amount of dollars a month. In terms of the work, I think there's a lot of it out here that's quite good. And as a producer or as a director, what's frustrating out here is people are only doing your shows until they get booked into a TV show and then they leave your show. So it's more of your emphasis on plays or TV writing now? Right now it's the theater. Olympia Dukakis said to me, I'll tell you the difference between New York and LA. In New York, it's all about the work. In LA, it's all about what your deal was. Going from community theater to the dam site was a big jump. I mean, you went from like rehearsing for three months to rehearsing for three weeks. And working with people that were pretty good in most cases, except beep, but we won't talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you try to do a community theater again, it's like, oh, please kill me. Yeah, I will say the dam site theater was very unique in that it wasn't community theater. It wasn't professional theater. It was somewhere- Well, in we got paid $5 a show. Oh, really? You must've uh got the raise. <laughs> <laughs> so. I have to make sure you showed up. Yeah. You, know, you got it at the end of the run. <laughs> the talent that was on that stage. So in my mind, they were professionals who had to make a living doing something else. So they stopped. It wasn't community theater at all. And it was a great training ground, really mm -hmm. great training ground. When you were here uh, in Monmouth County, writing and acting and producing plays, you were the big fish in the little pond. Mm -hmm. And then you moved to LA and you became the little fish in the big pond. What was unsettling about that transition? What, what happened when I first started writing for television, I had the arrogance of youth and the arrogance of being a playwright. Everybody works to please the playwright, you know? And then you come out to television and you're not the top of the pyramid anymore. You're a blueprint. You write your stuff and then all different groups of people tell you what's wrong with it and change things left and right. And it's a very weird transition to go through. It took me about two years to really let it go. It's not my theater, basically. We quit anything but love. It was our second TV show. It was a top 10 rated comedy, Jamie Lee Curtis, Richard Lewis. We were also on the show as actors until The Office. If you were either a writer or an actor, you didn't do both. And we quit that show because we didn't like them rewriting our scripts. How brilliant was that? I will say that if I hadn't quit that show, I wouldn't have been able to do the I Love Lucy special. So yeah. it, it worked out. You know, looking back, it was a stupid, stupid, arrogant move of a kid. 
Now, you and Jane were very successful at collaborating, but I remember you telling me once that you had a hard time getting any solo writing gigs. Once you become a team, it's very difficult to get hired as a solo. Absolutely right. Because they don't know, maybe maybe Jane wrote the whole script and just your name's on it. So it's, it's rough because yeah. it's very strange out here in that for a creative business, nobody has any imagination. <laughs> they think if you write comedy, that's all you can write. Yeah. So you're always having to sort of fight to do something different. Now, you mentioned a couple of times, and you probably don't want to talk about it, but I understand you've written a book. But if you don't want to talk about it, that's okay. Well, if you insist... <laughs> It's called Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures in the TV Wasteland. And it is about all the TV shows that Jane and I worked on. So each chapter of the book, it, one, there's one chapter on Newhart. There's one chapter on Working with Lucy. They're all funny stories that I used to like tell at dinner parties to get laughs. You can read it, put it down, come back three weeks later. And uh, the reaction's been great. I got some great reviews. And for a second and a half, I was number one on Amazon. That went Ooh. by really fast, but I'll take it. I was there. I'm ready to write a second or a third or a fourth book. I just haven't figured out where I want to go yet. What was your favorite show to work on? The favorite show I ever worked on was Daddy Dearest with Don Rickles. Frasier and Daddy Dearest were the exact same plot and we debuted the same week. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Yeah. Working with Don was a dream come true for me. The sweetest, nicest guy in the world. And I got to work with a bunch of people that I had admired as a kid. One of the perks of being an executive producer is you, you can bring in whoever you want. I brought in Kay Ballard. She actually thanked me for bringing her back to TV because nobody had hired her in a couple of years. I pulled Hunts Hall from the Bowery Boys out of retirement. I, I had a ball doing that show. I got Frank Sinatra on the show. It was his last sitcom. <laughs> Everything about it was terrific, except for the fact that the critics hated us for doing the show that we wanted to do. After all this time and at this advanced age... Hey, watch it. <laughs> Reword that. What do you enjoy more, writing or acting? It's usually whichever one I'm not doing at the time, because I miss the other thing. Acting will probably always be my first love. Although I, we did uh, You've Got Hate Mail off Broadway for five years or so, and those scripts were right on the laptop so you could read them if you wanted to. So I never learned my lines in, in five years of doing the show. <laughs> then we, when it came time to do uh, the Boomer Boys musical, I was panicked that I wouldn't be able to learn it because I hadn't had to learn a line in five years. It's, it pays to write the show because if, if you mess up, you just tell people it was a rewrite. Don't you but, love it when people change your words in your script? Uh, no, I don't like that <laughs> at all. But, but what, what a lot of actors don't understand is that the playwright or the, the TV writer or whatever, they've spent meticulous amount of time deciding can't or cannot. Yes. That kind of thing. And then for someone to come in and paraphrase, it makes me crazy, especially because we write with a certain rhythm. Comedy is all rhythm to me, you know? Right, right. Anybody who started out with Neil Simon would hear, you know, you hear a Neil Simon rhythm, you know? Yeah. And we have our own Van Zandt Milmore rhythm. So when you start paraphrasing it, you mess it up. I wrote that show, Sex and Garbage, and I actually got it produced two years ago. It was a really unusual thing to see your words being spoken, and, and I liked it. I really thought I wouldn't like it. So that was like, I actually think it's good. <laughs> Yeah, I can't, I can't watch my own shows that I'm not in. And I sit at the back of the theater and all I do is go, that line's wrong. I should, oh, that's, that's wrong. I should change that. I don't enjoy it. Yeah. I have enjoyed going to different countries and seeing my shows in different languages. That's very bizarre. You can tell someone who has comedy timing, whether they're speaking your language or not. I've seen some really fun. Mexico City was a ball seeing that down there. A couple of shows in Poland. Uh, people laugh at the same places. 
Yeah, but uh, the only problem for me with the foreign shows, a lot of the slang, or if it's a play on words, they do literal translations, and it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There. They're fun to see. Now, I just interviewed a screenwriter, but she said she likes writing 80% of the time and she hates it 20% of the time. Although she said most writers, it's the opposite. I like all of it. I really do. I'm, I'm one of these people I have to create. I wake up and go straight to the computer and I start working on stuff. I don't believe in writer's block. I don't think it exists. I think it's, it's a made up thing for lazy people. How's that? How's that? <laughs> I think the easiest thing to do is rewrite. You know, anytime, anybody who's on a writing staff with me, I, I give them a week to write a first draft. But it take, normally I get two weeks. You don't need two weeks. Slap it out. And then you can go back in the second draft and, it, and the things that are wrong are going to be glaring and you're going to change this. Yeah. But I don't believe in writer's block. So I've never, I've never had a problem writing. You actually helped me because when I was writing my play, I couldn't finish it. And you said, just write any finish, just anything, any yeah. kind of garbage. And I did, and, it, and that worked. And then I could go back and, and right. fix it. Yeah. The rewriting is the easier part. That's, exactly. to me, that's a lot of fun going back and fixing things and like, oh, this is the way it should be. Yeah. And the other thing, uh, I also will listen to anybody give a note. I really will. Doesn't mean I'll take the note, but I'll be happy to listen. Because if 12 people are telling me something on page 33, they may be 12 different notes. I know something wrong on page 33 yeah. and ultimately the audience is of course the arbiter of what works and what doesn't work when i started out and it's, it's a problem a lot of new writers have is everything they think is, they write is golden and i would say probably three four of my plays in i was insisting the audience was wrong this was funny <laughs> well you're an idiot billy because that's not the way it works <laughs> yeah so, you know, a lot of people have aspirations to write for television or for the movies. And I would say that most of them have absolutely no idea of the process that's required to even get your writing looked at. How did you break in in the first place? And I know you kind of touched on this before, but a little more specific. And what are the steps that you had to take to get where you are now? I'll answer the second question first. Uh, just a lot of work. There's no off time. There's a million people who want the same job you want. So you better be good at what you're doing. The luxury that people have now that they did not have when I was starting out is you have a telephone where you can make an entire movie on a phone. I mean, all you need is a sample of your work and you can make a short film on your phone. That's one way to get in. The second way to get in is there's a, there's a catch-22 thing where you can't get an agent without the thing, you know, that whole thing. But for someone who wants to go into television, there's only one calling card that counts and it is your spec script. A script you write on speculation for free. Mm -hmm. And that has got to be the best script you ever write in your career because you're not going to get a second chance for people to read you. A lot of times people are, oh, I want to get a job. I'm going like, oh, to rush this script out and they send it out and people like me will read it and go, eh. And then they'll write something better and send it to you and you go, oh, I read that guy already. I remember you telling me one time, if I may interrupt, that never do your spec script on the show that you're trying to get into because those yeah. writers know the show so much better than you do and know the characters better. Yeah, I think that's true. Unless you're a fanatic on the show. One of the best spec scripts I read was written for Seinfeld. We hired the writer and bought the script and turned it into the Dead Plumber episode of Martin. You know, I didn't write for Seinfeld, so I don't know how it would have been on Seinfeld. When yeah. you're a producer reading a script, you're looking for a bunch of different things You're when you're writing a comedy. You're looking for somebody who can tell a story. You're looking for somebody who knows characters. You're looking for somebody who knows jokes. So I mean character jokes. And you're looking for somebody who can finish a scene. You know, how does the scene end? Is that a good button on the scene? When you're putting a writing staff together, you're looking for 
all those different parts. And if one guy's a great joke guy and can't tell a story, I'll still hire him because I need the jokes too. Mm -hmm. The calling card of your spec script, you can't rush it at all. It has to be the most meticulous work you do. And I would suggest people write and then shelve it and come back to it a couple of weeks later, pull it down and look at it again. You're going to see mm -hmm. a lot of glaring things that need yeah. to be fixed. Also, people get into the writing business as being a writer's assistant now. We started out writing the plays and the plays brought us to TV. And after writing a two hour play, writing 22 minutes of a sitcom, we'd write that show in a day and a half. And there's, you know, there's a lot of luck involved. But I think primarily now, make your own web series on your phone. If it's funny enough and, and people watch it, girl lip synced to Broadway musicals and she played all the roles and filmed herself <laughs> doing them. Mary Neely, I think is her name. She got deals left and right doing the same thing. People got to use your, use your head. You have the technology now right at your fingertips. So many actors just simply give up when they realize the sacrifices they're going to have to make to be an actor. Do you think there's a tried and true way to have a career in the arts? No. The one thing I've learned after all this time is there are no rules of how any of this works. As successful as I've been, there isn't a moment when a job ends where I think I'm never going to work again. That's just something you got to get used to. So here's my last question. If you had to give 18-year-old Billy some career advice, what would it be? I, mean, I will say, you know, there's something to be said for an ego when you're starting out. You need it. It doesn't mean you can do everything you think you can do when you're starting out. I don't think I'd change much of anything, really. I've had a fantastic career. I've worked with some fantastic people, and I'm still doing it, which is great. I really never worked outside of show business ever, mm -hmm. which is weird. Mm -hmm. If I have to, I don't know what I'd do. Well, Billy, thank you so much for your time. This has Thank been fun. You. It's good seeing you again. Great seeing you. I love the arts and I love to talk. And that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucille Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Mm -hmm.